Well, we are continuing through this series. This is the part three of a four-part, I guess you count the Q&A, five-part series on being led by the Spirit. And what we're wanting to make sure that we understand as a church is what the Scripture says about what it means to be led by the Spirit. We, we do want to rightly be identified as a Spirit-filled church, or you might say as a charismatic church. But what we want to be is a biblically charismatic church. We want to be a church that is wanting to pursue the things of God the way God dictates those things are to be pursued. We want to walk with God in a way that pleases Him and has an impact on this world. That's our desire. That's our goal. And we don't at all assume we're going to get it always right. Nor do we even in teaching the series, nor do I even assume that this is the only way to do things. But what we want to do is make sure that what we are pursuing is rooted and grounded in Scripture. And I love the fact that this most beautiful of, of chapters in Scripture is purposely sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14. It is essential. It is the heart of the work of the Spirit. It is the heart of the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, the, the words are so beautiful that a, a lot of commentators uh, try to avoid over-dissecting them. They say, it's just like a flower, that if you dissect the flower, you lose its beauty. And I have to say, I kind of disagree with that because even though it is a beautiful thing to read, it's a beautiful thing to hear, it's a beautiful thing to know, the beauty is not just in the form of the words, but the function of the reality. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing a group of people who are truly pursuing and walking in the love of God. There's nothing more attractive in this world. And so it's the function that's so attractive. It's the function of love that's so beautiful. And that is a function, that is a fruit, the produce of the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll, you'll notice up uh, on the board how, we, uh, how the series uh, is sort of subtitled, this message is subtitled, Learning to Be Like Jesus. And I do that on purpose because if you remove the word love from 1 Corinthians 13 and replace it with Jesus, it fits perfectly. Let me read it to you again. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not Jesus, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not Jesus, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not Jesus, it profits me nothing. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. He is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. And on and on and on. Now, if we insert our name into this, there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I have to say, one of, the, one of the things that God does when you are called to be uh, a teacher of His Word, one of the things He does, if He's actually called to do that, is He, he forces you to go through what you're teaching. In other words, what happens is 
The scripture has an impact on you first. It permeates you first. And as it permeates you and has its effect, it's then that you're prepared to then share it with other people. It's one of the things that we experience. I'm not saying that, that if you're not called to teach that God's word is not going to still permeate you, but this is what God requires of us as teachers, that the word of God permeate us. And so sometimes when I'm teaching something that's a particularly difficult section, it's a hard week to prepare. And so I remember I joked once when I was explaining this to people and I was saying, so I just wish I could teach on love every week. But then I get to this chapter this week and I have to say, this is a very difficult chapter to teach. Because it's incredibly exposing. You read something like this and you, and you do, you think, if I insert my name there, man, all I feel is condemnation. And I think, Lord, I, I, I don't love. Not like this. And it's important to recognize, guys, that, that what we're talking about here, being led by the Spirit, is knowing that this is what God is leading us to. This is what God the Spirit is leading us toward. And it doesn't leave us without hope. This is what's so brilliant about this section. If it didn't end the way it ends in verse 13, I think all of us would just go, forget it, it can't be done. No one can live this way. No one can love this way. But it doesn't leave us without hope. And it's important to recognize, we're not just talking about, in chapter 13, here's some characteristics that you need to pursue. Oh, there's a pursuit on your side. Don't worry, that's a fact. But this is not just about characteristics that you need to pursue, but this is what God's Spirit is going to produce in you if you're a believer. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can be fully assured that God the Spirit is going to make you like Jesus. I want you to think about this as we talk about these things, that this is an amazing promise that God the Spirit is making us so one day we will all love God and love each other just like Jesus. That's the hope we have as his kids, it's the hope we have is, uh, of those of us who are born again. He's going to make us like Jesus. And so, I, I, as we're talking about these things, I really want to encourage you to, to say, okay, God, I, I know that this is exposing where I fall short, and I want to seek you about where I fall short, but also, don't lose hope. Because this is what God's Spirit wants to do. And be open to what God's Spirit wants to do in you. It may be that today what happens is that all that God wants to do is just show you. He just wants to break you down and show you this is how far you're falling short from what I'm calling you to. Or it could be that what God's Spirit wants to do is just say, listen, I want to encourage you. When you felt that you needed to do that, that was my Spirit indeed teaching you how to love these people or teaching you how to love me. We need to make sure as we talk about these things that we are saying, God, do this in us. That we're praying in faith for these things. Why? Because this is God's will for us. And the Bible says if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have the requests that we've asked. Now, because this is subtitled Becoming Like Jesus, this is what we want to talk about. We want to talk about how the Spirit wants to give us, and these are three main things. He wants to give us a motivation like Jesus. He wants to give us relationships like Jesus. And He wants to give us a perspective like Jesus. So we pick it up in verse 1, and Paul says, Listen, 
Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Now we're going to see, when it comes to the, to the gift of tongues, tongues is the only gift listed in Scripture that it says it, it can have, it can be used for personal edification. All other gifts given are not ever meant to be used for personal edification. They're meant to be used for the edification of others. Tongues can be used by yourself for personal edification. So here's why I'm saying this, okay? I'm saying this because when we're talking about uh, a motivation like Jesus is, we're talking about something that's greater than our personal experience. The motivation that God wants to develop in us, and we're talking about being like Jesus, loving like Jesus, He wants to make sure our motivation is bigger than our personal experience. And this rubs against our entire culture, doesn't it? Because all of culture is about what you get out of it. How many of you guys have seen Despicable Me 2? That's a great film. I love that movie. We've been dancing to that song this week. You know that happy, happy, happy. You know that song I'm talking about? I'm not going to sing it. Love that song. And it says, clap your hands if you know what makes you happy. And clap your hands if you think happiness is the truth. And we're like, happy. We're digging the song. But the funny thing is, as we're reading this, I'm realizing that, you know what? That's actually not true. Happiness isn't the truth. Sometimes love, as we're going to see later on, causes us great displeasure. It's difficult. It's important to recognize he wants us to be motivated more than just, hey, this is going to feel good if I love. Because it doesn't always feel good to love. It's got to be something greater than our personal experience. In verse 2 he says, and though I have prophecy, or it's like I know mysteries and knowledge, though I have all faith so I can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. These things to me speak of having a dynamic ministry. Sometimes the, the, our motivation for doing things, our motivation for coming together as a church is wanting to find some sort of personal validation through ministry. That's a massive trap, especially for those who feel called to ministry. You guys who are involved in ministry, I know a lot of you guys are, I don't, and I mean that in a sense of, I know that many of you guys serve anyway, but I mean some of you guys have specific callings in your life. You do pastoral ministry, or you do evangelism, or you do parachurch ministry. I know that's the case for many of you here, and I want to encourage you in something. Those are great things to do, but that's not who you are. This is why when people say, Hi, Pastor John, I say, just call me John. Because pastor's not my title, it's not my identity, it's my job description. I don't call you Plumber Bob. No, it's not who you are. The motivation that God has for us has to be something grander than just having, I want to have a dynamic ministry. In fact, if you look at verse 3, it has to be even greater than wanting to just make a personal sacrifice. He says, if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, what's interesting is that if we're really going to love one another in the body of Christ, we should expect that those who have these different gifts to operate in this way. Amen? If we're loving each other, we can expect these things to happen. But it's important to recognize that the things themselves aren't the motivation. And it's important to recognize those things can happen without the right motivation. But they produce nothing. They are nothing. They make us nothing. It's crucial that we understand that what the Holy Spirit wants to do is develop in us the same motivation that Jesus had in serving us. 
The Bible says this in John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says to his disciples, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Do you understand what the motivation of Jesus was? The motivation of Jesus was the love that the Father had to him. And he wanted to just give that back to the Father, show that back to the Father. How? By just doing what he said. He says, look, uh, this is it. My motivation is because the Father loves me. He didn't do what he did to get the Father to love him. God the Son, God the Father always loved each other perfectly. He did it from that position. You read John chapter 13 and you see how Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. John's very careful to say to us that Jesus, knowing who he was, where he came from, and where he was going, he starts washing their feet. He served, he loved, because he knew he was in a position of being loved. When Paul talks about being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20, he says, you know, being crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by faith. And he says, listen, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, past tense, who loved me and gave himself for me. Does that mean that God doesn't love him anymore? Because it was past tense? No. He says it because Paul understood, John understood, Peter understood, all the disciples, all the New Testament writers understood that the demonstration of the sufficiency and completeness and abundance of God's love for us is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that we see Christ crucified and we know that's how I know that God loves me. That's how I know. And that is my motivation to love others. If the fathers love me, I've loved you. That's what Jesus said. You see, often what we tend to do as human beings, even and we do this in this church, it happens in the church's law, is, is that we try to love people because we're thinking, if I love them, maybe they'll love me back. This is why marriages go pear-shaped. This is why Christian marriages suffer because in Christian marriages we have this high ideal of how love should look but we forget that we're not going to get love. The love that we're looking at, we're not going to get that from our spouse. We've got to get that from Jesus. It's as we receive the love of the Father that we give that love out. That has to be our motivation. Otherwise we... Clanging symbols and burned up bodies and mountains that are moved just to land on somebody else. No, God calls us to love like He does. In fact, listen, this is what Jesus says is supposed to be our, our, our greatest motivation, our greatest command. He said in, in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater commandments than these. Why do we do that? Why would we ever love God with all that we are? Only because He first loved us. And that never changes, guys. 
This is why Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And he said, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that you would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for you. In other words, he says, man, I'm praying that God's Spirit opens your eyes to know how radically, completely, sufficiently, eternally you're loved. Because when God opens your eyes to that, everything else flows from there. That's the motivation he wants from you. If you're coming to church and serving at church and looking to see, use your gifts at church because you're thinking, if I don't, I'm a bad Christian. If I don't do this, pastor's going to be mad at me. Or at least the guy who has the job description of pastor's going to be mad at me. It's not going to work out well for me. If that's what's happening, I'm not saying stop doing those things. I'm saying, listen, that's not what the Spirit wants to lead you into. The Spirit wants to lead you into a place where you go, I'm coming to love these people because I am loved. I'm going to love my spouse because I am loved. I'm going to love my kids because I am loved. I'm going to love my enemy my enemy, because I'm loved. That's the motivation that Jesus had. That's the motivation the Spirit wants to produce in us. Now, in verse 4, he goes on to sort of, in a sense, give a description. But really, I think it's just more about how, it's more of a display about what love should look like. He says, love suffers long. Now, some of your versions say love is patient, and that's true. But sometimes we think we, 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 we know the word, the English word patience or being patient. And uh, it, 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 it does, it's lost its intensity, which is why I like the, the New King James, suffers long. Love hurts for an extended period of time. You see, the, the experience of love isn't always pleasant to us when we're given it. He says, love is and is kind. Now, it's true that we can be kind and not be loving. But it's not true that you can love and not be kind. Now, kind here doesn't just mean being nice. Like, oh, I'm only going to speak gently to you. It doesn't mean that. Obviously, Jesus was always loved. He's love incarnate. And there were times when he yelled at people. To be kind, it's really this word that means to, means to be useful. It means to be practically beneficial to somebody. Now this is important because sometimes kindness is a rebuke. Sometimes kindness is just keeping your mouth shut even when someone's doing something they shouldn't do. He says, love's not just long, doesn't just suffer long and is kind, but also notice he says, it doesn't envy. In other words, it doesn't want somebody something that somebody else has. In fact, the word for envy uh, it's similar to the word uh, for jealousy or, or zealous. It, it means to be stirred up. It doesn't. It's not just a casual like, oh man, that's nice. I wish I had that. I'm not saying that's good, but that's, there's a casualness to that. I'm talking. This word envy is stronger than that. This is an idea of of oh, I wish they didn't have that. Why did they get that? I don't have that. To where you sort of delight when they lose it. Love doesn't do that. Love does not parade itself. Doesn't say, look at me, check me out. Think about that the next time you do a selfie. <laughs> Love is not puffed up. 
Love does not behave rudely. This is a tough one for me. I grew up with all boys. What they thought was rude isn't the same thing as that my wife thinks is rude. I've had to learn. If I love my wife, I can't do things that I used to do with my brothers. It doesn't work the same way. I won't get into what those things are. It wouldn't be edifying. Love does not seek its own. I want you to think about these things, okay? Think about these things when it comes to how we are to operate and be open to the work of the Spirit when we come together. Love does not seek its own. How often are we guilty of coming to church saying, when's my turn? When do I get to do that thing? When am I going to be used? Love is not provoked or easily provoked. In other words, somebody says something to try your patience, you don't, ah! you don't easily lose it. Love thinks no evil. Some of your versions say, uh, keeps no record of wrong. That's probably a better way to say it. It's the idea that love keeps no memory of bad things done against it. In other words, listen, when, when Paul's talking about love, he's talking about, listen, here's what it looks like to display love. It looks like pursuing a relationship where you are looking to benefit other people. You're wanting to say, how can I be a blessing to this person? How can I be a benefit to this person? That's what love's supposed to look like. So that when we have relationships with each other as believers, or we have relationships with other people as believers, unbelievers as believers, they were looking to do what's, what's most beneficial for them. Now, in talking about some of these things, can you, can you think about, gosh, do you do what I do? I, I read this and I go, how do we do that? What's that supposed to look like? And I don't know if you imagine, as I do, that, that in trying to walk in this stuff, I kind of go, I have no clue what that means to do it with Sammy. You know, what, what does that mean today? How am I supposed to love Sammy? I don't know. And you can see why Paul said in Philippians, he said, abound in love, listen, with all knowledge and discernment. In other words, it's not just like we go, yeah, let's just love each other. It'll just be natural and so easy. It's like, no, we've got to go, okay, Lord, how am I supposed to do this with this person right now? How, 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 do I, how do I make sure I'm not being provoked now? And we need the Spirit's leading and power to do that. We need to know how to do that. I've used this example before, but I think it's a great example. And, I, you know, and I'm going to brag because it's my son, so love doesn't do that, but I know. My son, Garrett, uh, when he was probably about 16, we were having a fight. We were having an argument. This is what happens. Parents and kids do fight sometimes. And, and I was frustrated with him about this thing. And um, I was probably too frustrated with him about this thing. And so I'm yelling at him, this is not right. You know this better, blah, 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 blah. And Garrett says, Dad, out of respect for you, I don't think I should say anything else. I think we should just part and pray and come back and talk. Man... You can, can you hear the sound of a balloon deflating? I was like, oh, you're right. I'm so humbled by that. So it was interesting. The, the emotions were interesting because on one side I was still really frustrated. On the other side I was going, I'm so proud. You know, well done. 
It's hard to know. It's hard to know. And I, he, he was loving me then. He was just saying, he knew this, this argument was going to escalate if he talked back. And so he said, Dad, no, I'm not going to do that. He was loving me then. And it takes this kind of spirit-led wisdom and empowerment to love like this. To develop relationships like this. To pursue relationships like this where we're thinking what's better. You know, to, to his credit, one of the things he didn't want to happen besides us have a fight, he didn't want me to do things he knew would look bad to his brothers and sisters. He didn't want me to do things that he knew would maybe disqualify me from ministry. He was thinking about what's going to benefit, this relationship is going to benefit dad. That's awesome. And that's not him. It's not Garrett. That's the Holy Spirit. So the thing is, is that we need, as we're talking about these things, we need to think this is not just some beautiful ideal. This is a work, a very practical work, that we require a, a real relationship with God's Spirit to know, okay, how do I do this, Lord? How do I walk in this? He says, love does not, verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, he's talking about developing relationships that don't conflict with the truth. This is, again, one of the lies of our culture is that, you know, if you don't accept what somebody believes or what somebody does, you don't love them. That's not true. Tolerance is not the same thing as love. Now, you can be rude to people who are different, rude to people who have different views or ideas. That's true. And then you wouldn't be being loving to them. But if to disagree with them, to say, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong, is not the opposite of love. It's an aspect of love. We're not loving people if we say to them, that's cool, whatever you want to do, that's fine. You're not loving people when you do that. There, there needs to be a time where we, because we love people, that we say, listen, call me crazy, but what you're doing here is destroying your life. Or maybe this is really the thing maybe we should really most be thinking of because we so sometimes love our relationships with people to the point that we actually don't love those people. We love what we get from those people. So we won't risk the relationship to tell them about Jesus. I mean, let's, let's be honest. That can happen. I'm not saying that you should clumsily just kind of blurt it out there so you can go, okay, now I feel better. You know Jesus. Okay, I said it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we say, okay, Lord, if I love this person, who I know is not a believer, I need to be intentional about saying, God, how do I share Jesus with them? Because they don't know you, and if they don't know you, they're lost. And I, I, I can't rejoice in that. I can't rejoice in, the, in a place where they're in iniquity. They're stuck in it. They're trapped in it. They're enslaved to it. But also, listen, love rejoices in the truth. Sometimes we're slow to do this too as believers, aren't we? Sometimes what happens is we get to know each other and we see each other's faults, don't we? We do, let's be honest. We notice faults before we notice good things. That's how we are. At least that's confessing my own sin. I do that. I'm sure none of you do that, but I do that. But you know what we should be doing more often out of love is rejoicing in the truth. When we see the light bulbs going on in some area, we should go, that's so good. That's so awesome that you see that. You know one of the things that one of the things I learned to say, and, and, I, and I hope this doesn't sound like a, just a cliche or just like I'm trying to give you put words in your mouth, but I found this to be one of the most encouraging things to say. And it was after someone said it to me. Someone said to me once, "Man, I see so much evidence of God's grace in your life." 
And that so encouraged me because he didn't say, you're such a great guy. Because when someone says to you, you're such a great guy, it just puffs you up, doesn't it? That's not going to help you. But when when someone sees that God's doing something in your life, and they go, man, I do see evidence of God's grace in your life. You know what that does? It encourages them, hey, maybe God is working in me. Maybe I do need to pay attention. Maybe I do need to listen to John for that full hour on a Sunday. Because God's doing something in me. Love rejoices in the truth. I see God doing something. It it makes me happy. It's a good thing to see God doing stuff in people. And we should encourage each other in these things. Love rejoices in the truth. There's no conflict between love and truth, between love and holiness. Listen to this. John says in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, notice, the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that simply means that which appeases wrath. There's no conflict between the love of God and the wrath of God. At the cross they kiss. As the psalmist says, mercy and righteousness have kissed. Where? At the cross. At the cross, God says, I hate sin and I will judge it. At the cross, God says, I love sinners and I'll have my son absorb this wrath so that they can be saved. No conflict. No conflict. So we need to be asking the Spirit to teach us to love this way. Lord, help us not to shy away from speaking the truth in love. Now, I heard a, a Bible teacher, I think it was Warren Wiersbe, uh, you guys probably haven't heard of him, he's an American Bible teacher, who said, uh, truth uh, without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. If you are loving people, being nice to them, and you never speak the truth to them, you're being a hypocrite. And trust me, they see it. If you're speaking truth to them, but you're not showing love to them, there's not a kindness or a patience, guess what? Not only are you a hypocrite, but you're also a brutal hypocrite. People see that as well. No, the Spirit of God wants to teach us to develop relationships where we're pursuing the benefit of others and that never conflicts with what the truth is. It always comes together. The Spirit's able to blend that together. But not only that, look at this. Verse 7, it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know what this is talking about? It's talking about living your life from the aspect or according to what the final outcome is going to be. So when he says it bears all things, it's the idea that you're going to, it's not the idea of kind of carrying a weight underneath you, it's the idea of you're going to cover all things. You know, it says in the book of Proverbs, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. I was on the phone with someone uh, the other day and I said something. I was just being honest about a bad motive I had about something. Um, and after I had shared that with this person, uh, they responded fine. Uh, they were cool. They didn't like 
call me out or anything. I, they knew I was confessing, I think. But after I said it, I, I was thinking later on, why did I say that? They could really use that against me. That's what I was thinking. Oh no, they could really use this against me. And, and it made me kind of realize, wait a second. You know, this person loves me. They do. I mean, we have a relationship. They've shown love. I love them. We, we're both believers. Why would I just assume they're going to use that against me? Love bears all things. We should have the kind of relationship with people, guys, that we think, you know what? We're going to put up with each other's weaknesses. We're going to cover things up. doesn't mean we're going to hide sin, but we're going to cover over the fact that people mess up. We're going to bear with each other in that. It believes all things. Let me ask you a very serious question. Do you believe, do you believe I'm going to get to heaven? It's, it's, it's the best that you know me. I'm not saying because I'm a, the pastor. I mean, do you, do you look at me and do you think God's doing something in him and if you see God doing something in me, do you believe that God's going to finish what he started? Because I believe that for you. See, this is what we're believing. We're not, it's not a matter of I, I believe in this person. You know, I believe in you. I see that you're a great person. No, I believe that what God began, he'll be faithful to complete. And so I'm going to act that way. He says, love hopes all things. I have an expectation for the future. Thereby, I endure all things. We really should be, as Christians, those who have the most optimistic outlook on life. You know why? Not because we our experiences are so grand. God says we're going to suffer greatly for following Him. And not even because we think everything in the future is wonderful. Because things could get worse before they're going to get better. Actually, I think the Bible is pretty clear. Things will get worse before they get better. Whether or not we experience that, another issue. Might die before it all comes down. But there's a reality. Listen, here's the reality. Things might get worse. There's a good chance we are going to suffer. But we are guaranteed eternal life with Jesus. That's our hope. We are guaranteed an eternity that's brilliant. We believe all things. Now, again, John says something about this. I think that speaks into this in John chapter 4, or 1 John chapter 4. Listen, he says, Love has been perfected or matured among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Do you see the connection between uh, having a, 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 a good expectation in the future and growing in love? That what John's wanting us to understand is, listen, he's saying, listen, the way you're going to grow in love for people the way you're going to, is to know that, look, God's doing something in your heart for eternity. So that because of Jesus, we have a certain boldness. We talked about this when we were in, in Colossians. If you remember, we said there's two attitudes that we can possibly have uh, when it comes to God or when it comes to heaven. We can sometimes say to ourselves, okay, I think I'm going to, you know, I think I should be there, but I'm not sure. That's one attitude. The other attitude that we can have towards heaven is, I know I shouldn't be there, but I'm going to be there. One assumes, hey, if I work with God well enough and cooperate, I'll make it to heaven. 
It adds your works to what Jesus has done. The other assumes what Jesus has done is enough, and because I've trusted in what Jesus has done, I'm going to be there even though I don't deserve it. Do you understand the difference? And so what Paul, what P, I'm sorry, what John's talking about here in 1 John is he's saying, listen, your love for God and your love for others matures in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment. God, I love you enough to take you at your word. You've died for me, and I can have boldness in the day of judgment. And that's going to show itself in this. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. We're, we're living with that kind of expectation. It's when we're always freaking out about, am I going to get there? Am I not going to get there? I better do more to make sure I'm going to get there. That we think we're pursuing love, but actually what we're doing is pursuing good works for righteousness, which the Bible says is a false gospel. It's when we pursue, when we, it's when we, when we uh, seek to love others because we know we've been so loved. It's when we endure with others because we know we're going to spend eternity with Him. That's when we are maturing in love. In fact, this is what this next section is really all about. Look at verse 8. He says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We'll talk about more of what that means next week. But notice he says, But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, he's saying something very simple, very clear. The gifts of the Spirit are temporary, but love is eternal. And this brings us to the third main point. The first, remember, was we want God, the Holy Spirit wants to lead us to have a motivation like Jesus. He wants to lead us. The second one is He wants to lead us to have relationships like Jesus. And here's the third one. He wants to lead us to have a perspective like Jesus. And having a perspective like Jesus means, listen, it means that we recognize it's love that lasts forever, not the gifts of the Spirit. There's going to come a time when we don't need those anymore. That's why he goes on to say in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now this is a verse that has less impact than it would have even 50 years ago. You know why? Because the gap between puberty and the time, uh, 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 like say marriage or moving out of the house and having a job happens, has gone from about 7 years to 13 in our culture. Do you know why? Because people don't want to grow up anymore. Now last week I was a little bit harsh to the guys. Especially, I mentioned specifically that British guys tend to, to not be as strong as they need to be. I was a bit harsh. And I do apologize because I think my tone was a bit harsh. But I think there's a reality in Western culture of this being true. I can't take that back. That we have a tendency not to want to grow up. That's why you have 35-year-olds still addicted to video games. This is what happens. And Paul's saying, no, look, there's a, there, I became a man. I matured and there was evidence that I matured. Now apply this to love and apply this to the gifts of the Spirit. What does it mean? Listen, it means this. Paul is saying, when I was a child, I had the same kind of mindset as a child. And, and the word for child is like an infant. Do, do you know what a mindset of an infant is? Me. Me. It's all about me. What I want. They do the tests on... on um, They've done psychological tests on children like that are under four years old. And what they'll find is, they'll, they'll, when they begin to, the, to, to find out what the child's perception is, how do they perceive reality, they will say to them, 
Do you have a brother? Yes, Bobby's my brother. Does Bobby have a brother? No. Why? Because they can only see things from their perspective. Everything revolves around them. That's a childlike attitude. So here's the thing. When it comes to how we treat coming together as a church, when it comes to how we treat letting the Spirit lead us to be like Jesus and to love like Jesus, we have to stop listening thinking, life revolves around me. Not having that childish attitude anymore. In other words, listen, maturity is pursuing what is eternal, which is love. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be like, oh, I'm so glad I can just get my reward and chill out, you know? Finally, I can just do what I want to do. I'm in heaven. No, do you realize what's going to happen? You're going to get to heaven and you're no longer going to have any desire for yourself. There's not going to be an inkling of self left. I think you'll have self-identity. I think you'll know who you are. I think even bits of our culture are going to survive into heaven, into the eternal. But there's a reality. You're not going to think about you anymore. You're going to just go and, Lord, you're so awesome and it's so great that we get to just serve each other and be with each other for eternity. Self. The love for self will be gone. That's maturity. is saying, oh, I want that. I want to grow into that. He says, listen, verse 11. I'm sorry, verse, um, verse 12. It says, for now, we've seen a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. In other words, when we get to heaven, we're going to see him. And we should want this, guys. Part of us moving away from our childish assumptions about how life should be is that we long to see him face to face. Let me ask you a very serious question. If you could go to heaven and it's all that you can imagine it to be, but Jesus isn't there, would you still want to go? Because what makes heaven heaven is he's there. Which is why the miracle of God's Spirit indwelling in us is so amazing. Because we have the potential to experience in a very minuscule way the glories of heaven. The very presence of God with us. And this is why our church should be, our gatherings together as believers should be that, Lord, we want you to be seen. We want others to experience your glory as we love them. See, even I say that, you start thinking, I guarantee it because I do the same thing, you start thinking, yeah, it'd be awesome if I could come and I could experience the glory of God's love when I came to church. I didn't say that, did I? No, we need to have a mindset, a mature mindset that says, Lord, I can't wait to see you face to face. Nothing is greater than knowing you, than seeing you as you are. Therefore, until we see you face to face, may we love one another so that they, others, can see you as you are. He says in verse 13, we're almost done. He says, and now abide, stay in, live in, let this be your house. Abide. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, it's not that faith and hope are bad. We receive the love of God by faith, don't we? We receive what He's done for us by faith. Hope is a beautiful thing. 
That, that optimism we should have as believers because we know, hey, kill me, I go to heaven. No problem. Treat me bad. If God gives me the grace to love you back, guess what? Reward in heaven. No problem. It's a win-win situation for me because I have the hope of heaven. Hope's a good thing. But there's going to come a time, guys, when you're not going to have to have faith anymore. You know why? Because when you see, you don't have to believe. There's going to come a time where you don't have to have hope anymore. You know why? Because when you have, you no longer have to hope because you have. But there's never going to come a time when love ceases. It's only going to increase. And this is what the Lord wants us to see.